everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Matter Loading Session. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. Thanks for making us a part of your weekly Matter Loading routine. Our main story tonight is about the Taliban. And this isn't just a recap of things you probably already heard of or read about, especially on Twitter because that's where most of you get your news. But we'll talk about some of the context behind why these things have happened. Like where did the Taliban come from? Who is to blame? The answer might surprise you. That kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but before that, let's talk about the earthquakes in Haiti. Because last Saturday, Haiti experienced a massive 7.2 magnitude earthquake that destroyed a lot of the structures and killed a lot of people. And the death toll has reached more than 1,900 with around 10,000 people or more being injured. And a lot of these places help seem distant with some areas not being visited yet at all by aid groups or emergency authorities but to be fair these aid groups or these emergency authorities it was a bit difficult to get aid there as well because of hurricane grace that hampered their recovery efforts and even threatened to unleash mudslides and cause flooding but some have said that regardless of all these things the damage was highly preventable and a lot of it was actually man-made not in the sense that the earthquake was man-made mind you but more of the inability of certain actors to respond very quickly and ended up causing the damage that was man-made. Mm. Because like the notion here is that a lot of it was all down to negligence on the part of the government. And also, the president was assassinated just a little while ago, so you do understand that there is quite a bit of political instability there. And some people said that the assassins came from Colombia or at least were funded by Colombians, those kinds of things. So. Uh, on one hand, you do kind of get the sense that it was, you know, preventable. But on the other hand, to what extent could that have been controlled anyway? At the same time, you are 100% sure that you are going to need humanitarian aid, which brings another question, which is, can we be sure that the humanitarian aid will really reach them? So there are concerns about whether donations will even get to the places where it needs to go to, not only because of the hurricane, not only because of the pandemic, but also because of very credible allegations of corruption or misuse of funds. The criticism doesn't just apply to governments, but also to non-government institutions, NGOs, and international organizations like the Red Cross. So you might remember in 2010, there was another earthquake that affected Haiti that shook the whole world. A lot of money was raised for charity. A lot of aid was sent. They reused a Michael Jackson song, We Are the World, We Are the Children. But unfortunately, the aid was too slow to materialize. So billions of dollars were actually pledged to Haiti, but even six months after the disaster, they have only received less than 2% of the promised support. And even Red Cross said that even for the money that was accounted for, and Red Cross insisted that they used most of the money that they received on relief efforts, a lot of that didn't seem to reach or impact those communities that were strongly affected. So this earthquake, as searches and rescue operations continue, we are expecting the death toll to go even higher. But another tragedy here is it has revitalized debates about who do we send our donations to? Should we give it to Red Cross? Should we give it to local charities in Haiti? Should we give it to their government? And we can't give you the answers to that. But if you do want to donate, we encourage you to have these discussions, research on your own, you know, everything so that you can make sure or at least reassure yourself that that money goes to a place that you know really matters at the end of the day because that's what matters it's actually getting the help to the people who need help this is on top of the fact that they're also experiencing a COVID-19 crisis so everything seems
seems to be muddled. Everything seems to be much more complicated given that natural disasters seem to be piling on top of each other. So this brings us to our next debate or our next news topic for today. It's about the booster shot issue that's been going around quite a bit even on social media. As mentioned in our previous episode, the Delta variant spread has propped up conversations on whether or not people ought to have booster shots. Nations like Germany and France and Israel have already authorized booster shots for their older citizens. The Biden administration as well is developing a plan that would roll out booster shots as early as this fall, saying that the wait will be too catastrophic if nothing is done now. Last week, the US authorized a booster for people who have compromised immune systems, and officials have said that authorizing third doses for immunocompromised people was a separate issue from considering whether booster doses are needed for the rest of the population. So basically what they're saying is those with weaker immune systems basically really need a booster shot, but it's still questionable whether other individuals in a population will need it. So officials from the WHO, however, see a sort of downfall with this because even if we had booster shots, it would mean more shots to certain people that might not need it the most, like people who are privileged, etc. And this would deprive low-income countries of vaccines, giving the, the virus more opportunities to evolve, mutate, and basically cause more havoc for people around the world. Yeah, so our next story is about what's happening in Hong Kong, specifically with regard to the opposition. So you might remember that since 1997, Hong Kong has been a special administrative region of China after it was handed to it by the UK. And in March of and April of 2019, we've seen a huge revolt against Chinese rule and in hopes for democracy in Hong Kong. So in 2019, 90% of the local council election seats were won by pro-democracy politicians. But now, a lot of them are being driven to quit because they feared retaliation from Beijing. So district councillors usually, like traditionally, they handled very unglamorous tasks like dealing with pest infestations, overflowing trash, illegal parking, but Beijing has since trained its attention on councillors after they took on bigger importance back in 2019. And now, they're being made to take a new loyalty oath with fears that violations, or not even violations, but perceived violations that could leave them imprisoned or barred from politics or even bankrupt. And this is consistent with some of the things that Beijing has been imposing on Hong Kong recently. Just last April 15, Beijing celebrated and imposed on Hong Kong the very first National Security Day. The Security Day was just a lot of propaganda directed at children and designed to rehabilitate the image of the Hong Kong police force, and it propagated a single narrative of the protests that we saw back in 2019, portraying the protesters as foreign interests meddling in local affairs, further showing that even if you win a lot of local seats, ruling parties still have ways of enforcing this sort of power asymmetry to keep, you know, people who are not in positions of power even further away from winning more seats in the future. The next story we have is about the 2022 budget for the Philippines. Basically, the Duterte administration is proposing a 200 billion budget for COVID-19 response, especially for the year 2022. So this is going to be distributed to different departments, and this makes up 4% of the country's total budget for the year. This may seem small, but given the amount, we need to remember that a lot can be done and accomplished if the funds were used correctly, which is, as we all know, another issue entirely that 
I can ramble about for days. And we have. And we actually. have. But I'll not go into that for this one. So under the DOH, the total amount will be divided for different activities such as the hiring of hearth, hearth, hearth. Of, of health personnel, funding for supplies, the purchase of vaccines, and even the purchase of booster shots since the Philippines is also considering having this kind of thing implemented for not just the elderly but for the rest of the population. Which makes me kind of laugh a bit because we're already thinking about booster shots when so many of our population That's true. haven't yeah. even gotten their first dose. But anyway, on top of this, given that the budget allocation was already given to different departments, surprisingly, the University of the Philippines would also receive some money. So they'll be receiving $140 million for Phase 2 of the Philippine Genomic Information and Resource Hub Project, if it is approved, right? So the budget is still unsure, it's still pending approval, but basically this is the amount that UP will get, if ever. And the goal for 2022 is to make Philippines like better equipped to deal with the pandemic but the problem is that many claim, and from my personal opinion as well, that the Philippines is still being reactive to the pandemic as opposed to being preemptive to it. Yeah, and that makes sense. And even as a student, you know, I see news like this and apparently almost 100 billion pesos of DepEd's proposed 700 billion peso budget was also marked as a part of the government's pandemic programs. But if you take a look at it, it's just like continuations of all the things that we've already been clamoring for. Mm. And like, these are the things that you would have hoped like they would have figured out on their own. You know, so I do agree with you as well that it is a little bit reactive rather than preemptive. So part of those is the government subsidy and voucher program, which amounts to 27.2 billion pesos, the flexible learning program, which is 15.22 billion pesos. But we just want to like emphasize that none of these amounts are certain. Um, these are all proposed amounts and can still be increased or cut so you know stay tuned like um keep yourself updated because you know talks about the budget they're extremely boring no one likes talking about them Except nobody Poa. likes <laughs> no one likes reading the general appropriations act every year and it's just like pages upon pages of numbers that you don't really care about but they do matter so this is like one of those things where the good work is really the unglamorous work that everyone needs to do for themselves to keep themselves updated to keep themselves posted you know, that kind of thing that Koa does. <laughs> yeah, like, I think that's another issue. We've already tackled that the last time. I guess our main story for today would obviously be Afghanistan and the takeover of Kabul by the Taliban. This was an event brought mainly by the fact that the U.S. left the area recently or is in the process of leaving the area. And in order to understand why people are angry with the U.S. for leaving without the plan, why some people say that the Taliban are liberators, why some people reject that as well, we have to go back to the beginnings of the group as a whole. So the Taliban was not created in a vacuum as a lot of people believe groups are created, right? So there's this weird misconception that terrorist organizations or any kind of organization just kind of forms in isolation and then decides to attack a particular government. That's sadly not how it works. So while the group was formed in 1990, many leaders were active in several opposition groups from the 70s and 80s. And this was really intense, politically speaking. And as you'll see, there's quite a lot of parallelisms with what's happening today. Yeah, because back then, you have to note that Afghanistan's government, then known as the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, was itself a result of a bloody revolution.
revolution where a communist political party overthrew and killed the monarchy. So this was called the Saur Revolution. But at the time, the Afghan government was pro-Soviet. So right, they were funded by the Soviets. That's why they're a communist political party. That's the reason why the resulting government was pro-Soviet. So we have to put this in the context of the Cold War as well between the Soviets and the Allies. Let's call them, you know, America. Because <laughs> it's basically America. Or that's... the West, you know. Yeah, but like... Mostly America. Mostly America is really noisy about communism, stuff like that. So the Afghan government invited Soviet Union forces into the country to aid the government. Because like, you can see, obviously... They just finished a revolution. There's still a huge power vacuum. Times are unstable. So they invited foreign forces to intervene and help them run the country. Which didn't, you know, it wasn't taken very nicely by the people who say that, oh, we are being invaded. Uh, So that's the reason why a lot of people formed opposition groups against that. And the collection of loosely aligned groups was called the Afghan Mujahideen. And after the Soviets pulled out eventually in 1989, there was now a huge power vacuum. So a lot of groups, the Mujahideen included, saw a government that lacked support from an international superpower. So it started a full-blown civil war by 1992. And it was here that the United States intervened significantly, not only by, you know, supplying the Mujahideen with arms, but also, as we later talk about, also by, you know, radicalizing people even more. And that leads to the Taliban later. To be fair and balanced, though, I know we kind of shed a lot on the United States. States, it wasn't just the United States that funded the, the Mujahideen. Why can't I pronounce it? Mujahideen, right? It was also Saudi and Pakistan. A lot of the funds were given to Pakistan first before it was sent to the Mujahideen. Probably so that they can avoid accusations of interference with another country's political affairs. So the US was kind of sneaky here. They yeah. had a third party, basically a middleman, in order to give arms to people. But eventually, people were able to track it down that it came from the United States. So a lot of funds were given to Pakistan first. And around 90,000? 90,000. Yeah, 90,000 troops were trained by Pakistan using partly the money that was given by the US and Saudi. So a lot of people ended up being involved. It became like a big coaching session. Like a lot of like people were recruited in order to do this. And it was basically a big political mess. Like it was seemingly straightforward at the time. But as things unfolded, we can see a lot of issues come about with it. So the fighting was so intense and so prolonged that within two years, Kabul's original population of 2 million was reduced to 500,000 because so many of them fled the city similar to what we're actually seeing today. So as we mentioned, there seems to be history repeating itself. But it was in this context of unrest and armed struggle that we saw the rise of the Taliban. And this is where we get first introduced to these people. So the Taliban was originally mostly a student movement, right? You'd be surprised that it's mostly formed by students. And this is because the word Taliban is Pashto for basically the word students. They studied in madrasas or Islamic schools in the Pashtun region. And when they saw everything that was happening around them, they concluded that only religious law or what they considered to be a religious law, as many people would argue, could restore order. The Taliban only first emerged in the scene in August of 1994, announcing that it wanted to liberate Afghanistan from its present corrupt leadership of warlords and establish a pure Islamic society. Yeah, so it's very interesting there that 
like the Taliban actually started as a student movement but the United States seeing now a potential ally and overthrowing this quote-unquote communist government they radicalized them even more by providing school books promoting militant Islam including images of weapons you know of soldiers violence to make children hate foreign invaders even more so they again they were studying in madrasa so these were religious schools mm. so you are building these connections um, between the religion and violence so when you have debates out like oh Islam is a religion of war it's only because you made these certain connections as a result of that kind of schooling and the US had a direct hand in making those connections so that's actually the reason why I'm like I was watching TikTok the other day mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I saw I saw a TikTok from Mia Khalifa where she was saying that you know the US needs to own up to its role in creating the Taliban but um, what a lot of people were criticizing there was the fact that she said that the Taliban was imposing Sharia law and a lot of people were saying that this is not actually Sharia law. It's an interpretation. It's an interpretation. Yeah. Because like, all, you, you'd be surprised that a lot of people say that Sharia law, the very first tenet of that is follow the laws of the land in which you are situated. So if you're trying to invade another land, that is basically not Sharia law. So that's the thing here, right? It is basically the, you know, the more warlike aspects of Islam that was heightened, magnified because of, you know, these secular, these secular conflicts and these secular interests like the interests of the United States. I actually saw a post recently or a news article, I think, Twitter news article, they end up kind of blurring the lines and they don't end up being the same. But basically, it said that the Taliban is still using the books that the U.S. sent and they're using it to indoctrinate the younger generation so the u.s might have had a fault before but their faults are still being used up to today today so that's problematic yeah so yes that's why this happened you know this was important as well because in the perspective of these students um these books we're telling them that okay our government is being controlled by communists but they took it a bit further justifiably so i would say um and they reached a conclusion that actually western imperialists are trying to control our country so we must take it back and reimpose islamic law so that's the reason why um i think part of the reason why they're like this today so from their perspective the west in the form of the soviet union caused all the unrest around them and even to a large extent now, as you will see, um, the United States. So by 1996, the Taliban seized the capital and hanged the nation's last communist president um, in a public square. It declared Afghanistan an Islamic emirate and started imposing ultra-strict interpretations of Islamic law. And the Taliban never eased this interpretation because, according to them, they just wanted to make sure that the civil war would never again be repeated. So these restrictions included um, banning women from education and employment, except for female doctors anyone who didn't obey would be jailed or beaten publicly and its rule and to be fair it only lasted for six years it was marked by an abuse of ethnic and religious minorities and you know like innocent activities like music television was cut down and even sports was highly regulated male athletes were told what to wear and matches were paused during the five daily prayers and we just wanted to note that this makes our writer Jay really really 
really sad. Not because, you know, of the prayers, but because sports were highly regulated. And like, surprisingly, a lot of the people in our team, Nina, they're big sports fans. Like, we have Jay, we have Charlie. Yeah, we hired people. They're not hired. We teamed up with people to talk about sports because we're bad at talking about sports. But anyway, so this was a time that a lot of things were being restricted, including sports. But in 1999, the United Nations imposed sanctions on the Taliban over its links to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, who you might remember eventually caused 9-11. And this was a big deal at the time and all the links started clicking for the United States, like all the connections started being made. Allegedly, they had once fought for the Taliban or Osama bin Laden in particular was part of the Taliban, allegedly. So that's where the idea that bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were funded from by America. This is where a lot of conspiracy theories come from as well. Like this is where you note that conspiracy theories don't really come out from nowhere. So the, the theory that 9-11 was caused by the United States, like, eh, sort of true, right? If you look back long enough, you can say that, yeah, the United States actually caused 9-11. You know, like, like it's your the, fault. Yeah, like the butterfly effect. You go back in time, you fund some religious extremists, and then you cause 9-11 20 years into the future. Like, yeah. <laughs> that kind of, yeah, in that way, yeah, seguro, it was an inside job. Yeah, so the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in October 7 of 2001 after the Taliban refused to hand over al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden, who was hiding in the country at the time. The Taliban was toppled within a couple of months of the start of a bombing campaign by the US and its allies. A new interim government headed by Karzai was formed in December of 2001, and three years later, a new constitution was declared. It took its cues from the reformed constitution of the 1960s, in which women and ethnic minorities were formally granted their rights by the nation's last king, uh, Zahir Shah. But by 2006, the toppled Taliban had regrouped and was able to mobilize fighters in its battle against foreign occupiers and its allies. So we can see here that it, it seemed to have gone back and forth. So it was in the power of the allies, then the Taliban took over, and then the allies took over again, and then the Taliban was slowly forming in the shadows. In 2011, the Obama administration allowed a group of Taliban officials to move to Qatar, where they would be charged with laying the groundwork for face-to-face -face negotiations with the government of then-President Karzai. Yeah, so the head of the Taliban political office in Qatar, specifically in Doha, in, two, in 2020, oh, that was last year. It, it seems seemed like, like a long, time. yeah, <laughs> such a long time ago. Like last year, Feb last year, um, the Taliban political office signed an agreement with the United States that paved the way for the withdrawal of the United States and other foreign forces from Afghanistan. So this was called the US-Taliban agreement, but the agreement also launched peace talks between the Taliban and Afghan leadership in Doha. But the Taliban continued its military offensive on the ground while still participating in the talks. But also the agreement, just saying like I read the, the full text, it didn't have real assurances that the Taliban would keep true to its word. Um, it was just saying that, you know, we promised not to enter Afghanistan, cross his fingers, stuff like that. And although we did argue in some debate rounds that happened during the time that the only reason why they were willing to even negotiate was that the main thing that Taliban wanted was to keep America out so they did have an interest in staying true to their word. Looking back, these arguments obviously wrong but last Sunday, they entered the presidential palace retaking Afghanistan 20 years after they were driven out of power and the takeover has, you know, a lot of things worthy of note. The first one being that it has led to the overcrowding of the airport um, because a lot of people 
people wanted to escape Afghanistan. And many of the Afghans are so scared that the Taliban will once again place the harsh interpretations of Islamic law that they relied on when they ran Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. People were so desperate to leave, they clung to the side of military planes, plunged to their deaths once takeoff happened. So like they were doing extremely dangerous stuff because they needed to flee so much. So you can understand the fear that they experience. Um, and this is, you know, in direct contrast to the idea that they are liberators. If they really were liberators, why are people in such a hurry to leave? And pictures of the overcrowded carriers are circulating online. Most people fled with very little of their belongings. And the heartbreaking thing here is, aside from that, is that when a lot of people saw these photos of the overcrowded carriers, people said, hmm, this will just spread COVID. Like, how heartless could you be to care about that as people are literally fleeing from their homeland because they're afraid that they'll, that they'll get killed or beaten or, you know, even abused because of their government? I also saw a hot take from some conservatives online that a lot of people are just using the conflict of, of Afghanistan as a reason to go to the United States to steal work from people who are more deserving. And I'm like, no, honey, I don't think they care about work right now. They just want to survive, right? That, that It was really harsh. I don't think people understand the situation, which is why a lot of them jump to these really strange conclusions. Meanwhile, however, aside from the crowded airports, President Ashraf Ghani left the country earlier. So so they're cur currently facing allegations of fleeing Kabul with four cars and a helicopter full of cash. Of course, we're not sure if this is true yet because their whereabouts are unknown. So we'll likely keep you posted on that, especially since the question of a lot of people is what will happen to this president? What are we going to do? What are they going to be held accountable for? The third thing to note is that the Afghan forces obviously were not able to push back on the Taliban. So why weren't they able to do so? Despite the fact that they had billions in the past 20 years to equip their forces because the US and NATO were training the Afghan forces, corruption was still at the root of a lot of the operations. So commanders would exaggerate the number of soldiers to siphon off resources, and troops in the field often lacked ammunition, supplies, or even food. And corruption here even accelerated when the U news of the U.S. pullout came into light because the people in power were trying to make the most of the situation before the U.S. left completely. So in essence, they were underprepared because they weren't exactly preparing for this, and they grew too reliant on the U.S. and the allies. So as mentioned by spokesman John Kirby of Pentagon, you can resource, you can train, you can support, you can advise, you can assist, you can cannot, however, by will, you cannot purchase leadership, and leadership was missing, especially if you look at this particular country. Yeah, and this leads us to the fourth thing. <laughs> fourth thing? There's a we're talking about so many things. But like, speaking of, you know, them being unprepared, actually, a few weeks ago, Biden was trying to reassure everyone that, no, the Taliban will not be able to take over. <laughs> the, there is an army of, quote-unquote, 300,000 people that are very strong and just, just as well-equipped as any other strong military in the world. Obviously, you know, the intelligence community didn't have enough knowledge of the corruption to, uh, of the corruption that was actually taking place until, you know, shit hit the fan. But Biden also further claims that this is not the fault of the United States alone when he called it 
gut-wrenching, you know, what happened while he did say that, he emphasized in his speech that the point of their involvement in Afghanistan is to protect the U.S. from further attacks like 9-11 and not necessarily nation-building. The main interest from Biden's perspective was the principle of pulling out American forces, mm-hmm. pulling out Americans from, you know, this place of war. Because he, like he said in, a, in an interview recently, he said that there was never a good time to pull out of Afghanistan. Um, there would always be complications. It's just that in principle, should we send Americans, you know, they said like their their sons, their daughters into a war that will never end. So that was the reason why they pushed through with their um, deadline, which is this coming August 31. So anyway, um, that's the reason why he stood squarely behind this decision to pull US troops out. And the Taliban, on the other hand, what has it, it, what has it been doing? The Taliban is trying to project a more moderate image this time around, but observers in Afghanistan and internationally still remain kind of skeptical because on Tuesday, their spokesperson promised to protect women's rights and press freedom in the first news conference ever since the takeover. But you can't blame the people who want to flee. You can't blame women who want to flee given their past experiences with the Taliban. Yeah, what I heard actually was that once the takeover happened, schools were dismissed or they weren't exactly dismissed. They were asked to leave the school premises first and then the women teachers were asked not to return back and they had like to say goodbye to their students that they were teaching for years because the women had to flee and hide in case the Taliban would enter the schools and suddenly you know like apply strict rules on them or do much worse we're not exactly sure the US State Department now because of all of this is offering refugee status to the Afghans who assisted in the US during the war in Afghanistan we've talked about this in a few episodes before but it's worth noting that this is sort of an accountability measure that the U.S. is taking. As small as it is, it is still a step in the right direction. But, you know, how many steps in the right direction can you take when you ran the opposite way in the first place by pulling out? But that's a different discussion. This refugee status may be given to individuals who worked for news outlets, medical services, and non-governmental organizations as well. Another thing to note is that China is stepping up their diplomatic power by welcoming Taliban forces to Xinjiang, a city in northeast China. And China has had talks with the Taliban and has extracted a public pledge from the Taliban that stated that the group would not allow any of their fighters to use Afghan territory as a base to carry out attacks inside China. So it seems that China wants to help, but they also want to help in the same way that the U.S. wanted to help, which was to protect their own interests in this war and to prevent the Taliban from ever invading foreign land. So we've already talked about this in the past. It's worthy of note once again, because this proves that, you know, when a power vacuum exists, it doesn't just solve itself. Another one usually takes its place as a superpower. So that's something that you need to take note of. It's still an evolving story, but we'll keep you posted regarding that. Yeah, and the Taliban, to be fair, has also shown signs of being open to more diplomacy, given that they've actually already visited other capitals such as Tehran in Iran, Moscow in Russia, and Ashgabat. The Taliban, though, and this is me feeding the skeptics, the Taliban just had their first protest and they met their first protest with violence or, you know, allegations of violence. So Afghanistan's new rulers fired into the crowd in the northeastern city of Jalalabad and beat protesters and journalists. Demonstrators opposed to Taliban rule also took the streets in costs in the southeast. But on the other hand, you have people who are supportive of the Taliban saying that they didn't actually fire into the crowd. 
their main intent was to shoot into the air to get people to calm down and to pay attention. But this leads to a lot of debatable things like the first and most obvious thing being what do we do? Should we continue to pull out? Like are we going to follow the main principle of Biden which is let's just get our citizens away from this place? Or is it you know we need to fulfill our role as you know the world police? Should we you know own up to our mistakes if there are any? Those kinds of things. Should you pull out? Should you not pull out? Should you delay the pulling out like as a middle ground? Are we sure that the Taliban will be that bad? To what extent are we looking at their actions with the protests? Is that a sign as to things to come? Or you know, how about China? Will China successfully take over the role of mediator? Those kinds of things. At the same time, you also have debates about who is to blame because like depending on who gets the blame, right? It's also about who will be responsible for fixing these things too. Um, so on one hand, you have people saying that it's actually Biden for continuing the deal to pull out. A lot of people are blaming Trump for negotiating that deal in 2020 with the Taliban that had almost no reassurances that the Taliban would keep out of Afghanistan. A lot of people are going further back and saying that it was actually George W. Bush's fault because he invaded Afghanistan in 2001, taking the Taliban out of power. And people are going even beyond that to say that it was actually Ronald Reagan who armed the Mujahideen in the 80s and that led to the rise of the, of the Taliban and also the, the school books thing that was done under Reagan CIA. And people are even going further back and saying that's actually Russia and the Soviet Union who funded the takeover of the Afghan government and instigated the killing of the monarchs. And some people even go further <laughs> back than that to the 1800s. Some people say that actually this instability all started happening in the 1800s when Britain invaded Afghanistan and installed their own leaders. So all that political instability started hundreds of years ago. And some people are even saying that the very borders of Afghanistan were just a result of those British wars. The thing that you have to note though is all of these are technically true, I would say. And they all have one thing in common. The thing they have in common is that foreign countries were meddling and trying to make a personal gain from their interventions in this particular region. So regardless of which one you want to blame, you want to blame Trump, Biden, George Bush, Reagan, the Soviet Union, or even Britain as a whole, just take note that this is all because things weren't handled well. And most things aren't handled well because most countries, even if they have good intentions, they get corrupted quite fast, quite easily. And because power Power always corrupts absolutely. Or this is just my realist perspective taking over. As political scientists, we're taught to think in the worst case scenario all the time. I'm not sure what econ teaches you, like rational choice theory, kind of feels like realism in a way, right? It's like it's like realism for money, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's realism <laughs> for money. Well, well, the idea behind realism is like self-interest, but rational choice theory, the way that it's applied most of the time is, you know, the most rational thing to do is to get the most amount of resources. Um, but that's being selfish, isn't it? Yeah, that is being selfish. Um, and, and the thing about rational choice theory is that it's not even true. It's not true. The problem though is a lot of countries' foreign policies were based on um, this idea that people just want to maximize resources. And as you've seen, a lot of that ends up being very damaging to the people on the ground because people don't necessarily just care about resources. And when people do only care about resources, a lot of people get put into
into the crossfire. So I would say for the people who are listening to this episode, keep an eye out for the news, specifically how the news is phrased. So I read an article by the CNN recently that says that the Taliban is sitting on a lot of minerals available in the in the area of Afghanistan, and that these particular minerals, get this, would actually help the environment, right? Wow. Yeah. So a lot of people are saying that this is manufacturing consent because it's priming up another reason to invade Afghanistan and take particular resources from it in the guise of helping the environment and helping the world. Yeah, so they go like, we're invading you to save the world. Yeah, I mean, that's always been the narrative, but it always takes a different form every single time. So does history repeat itself? I don't know for sure, but this particular story, if we look at the Taliban and when we look up Afghanistan, seems to point to that particular direction. So that's it for this episode of Debatable and this matter loading session we hope you learned a lot if you have any questions about afghanistan and the taliban um probably ask people who are experts not us like we are just as matter loaded as some of you guys um we are getting our information from people who know better and obviously as much as i've taken a lot of political science courses and topics on this exactly there are still a lot of people we should probably listen to and not just you know um vomit out ideas as debaters yeah but at the same time be critical about the things that you are being told so that includes these episodes yeah of course but like at the same time if you hear like an american expert telling you that oh it's it's actually okay take that with a grain of salt actually take everything with a grain of salt do your own research draw your own conclusions but always be willing to change that in the face of new data yeah so just as a sort of precaution or a sort of disclaimer like disclaimer disclaimer comes at the end now (laughs) (laughs) yeah the disclaimer here is that a lot of these have been our opinions based on our research you may form your own based on what you find out in the future so don't come at us if you disagree or actually come at us we'd we'd love to have a discussion but come at us respectfully is what i'd want to say all right that's it for this episode thank you and bye bye